This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hello, this is the Fiction on Fiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So wait, have you ever written something just purely, strictly for money? Be honest. Are you offering? I got like a couple hundred bucks, or actually in this case, a couple hundred rupees I could give you. Okay, no. A couple hundred thousand? Now you're in the front door. I'm listening. Is there anything you want this to be about? Like some particular subject matter you had in mind that I could whip up for a couple hundred thousand dollars? Well, what if it was something that you didn't want to write about at all? Like a a novel maybe that insinuates that only white people live in Kansas City and that those people only attend country clubs and are vaguely bored? I think Mr. and Mrs. Bridge already have that covered, so... uh... Okay. I don't, even, I don't think he made that much money off that book. <laughs> so here's my second pitch. Uh, what if I asked you to write a Midwestern novel in which all the characters are deer hunters, speaking a thick regional dialect, and do meth? Doesn't Ozarks... Is, did, am I, I would have liked to... I mean, if I had done the Ozarks thing, then I, I would be rich now. I wouldn't be sitting here doing this podcast. That's my point. So what if someone asked you to write something totally stereotypical about a subject that you knew well and... And it's like promise that you would make a pile of money doing it. What would you do? Have you been talking to my agent? <laughs> that's, right, that's unfair to my agent. My agent has never asked me to do that. However, this is the dilemma facing the man, uh, the main character of the film American Fiction, a fantastic movie directed by Cord Jefferson and based on Percival Everett's novel Erasure. Both the film and the book are filled with subjects that this show likes to talk about race, class, and the inner workings of the literary establishment. Exactly. In that movie, its subject matter, and the novel it's adapted from, is the subject of our podcast today. And to discuss this with us, we have two fantastic guests. First, Jacinda Townsend. Jacinda is a former journalist and lawyer turned public official and novelist. A graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, Jacinda spent a year as a Fulbright Fellow in Cote d'Ivoire. Her debut novel, Saint Monkey, won the 2015 Janet Heidinger Kafka Prize and the James Fenimore Cooper Prize, and her most recent novel, Mother Country, was the 2022 winner of the Ernest Gaines Award for Literary Excellence. Jacinda, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me again. And she's joined by James Bernard Short. James is an emerging short fiction writer, essayist, and poet. His work has appeared in Callaloo, The New Guard, Blood Orange Review, The McNeese Review, Smoke Long Quarterly, Columbia, a Journal of Literature, and Art Killen's Review of Arts and Letters, and SX Salon, a a small acts literary platform. He is a 2018, 2017, and 2016 Kimbilio Fellow and a 2015 Givens Writing Fellow. James holds degrees from Northwestern and the University of St. Thomas. He currently resides in the Twin Cities. James, welcome to the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. We really appreciate both of you joining us. Um, So just to lay out for our listeners some basic plot points uh, for folks who maybe haven't seen the movie, Thelonious Monk Ellison is a writer, as we've discussed, and his current novel is a retelling of Aeschylus' The Persians. And then his agent tells him that publishers want a, quote, black book. And Monk responds, they have a black book. I'm black, and it's my book. 
So just in a, here's a softball to start us off. Is this a realistic conversation in today's literary industry? Well, you know, having read the round of reviews, I don't know that that's such a softball because there seems to be some kind of um, fierce opinion that the satire is a bit dated. Um, and I mean, in some ways, I think people are correct. The publishing industry has grown slightly. Um, I remember, you know, being a young person and feeling like everybody wanted a slavery book or everybody wanted what I call the ghetto stew book or a book about your mama's magical Negro moments on a porch in Alabama. Um, I also remember my mother stood up in the middle of the color purple and just walked out of it. Um, she was just so, so disgusted. So we've grown a little bit, but I would say the basic intent is still there and the basic desire is still there because the publishing world is as America is. We are not post-racial. Um, as long as capitalism existed, exists, we will not be post-racial because we need to identify who's supposed to pick the figurative cotton. And that's us. So when you turn any people into a monolith, you get to dehumanize them. And I would say now in mass culture, pop culture, um, certainly in the literary world, we are still sort of being subtly turned into a monolith at all times. Um, so now I think in, in literature, you know, the black people don't have to be living in a shack, but the pathology has to be the type that we usually want to identify as belonging exclusively to the black community. So I picked just a few examples. Um, you know, we have Ameri an American marriage, which is a black man's brush with the criminal justice system. Um, we have Colson Whitehead's Harlem Shuffle, which is a black man's actual criminal activity. Um, and I, I will, we, you know, I'd love to talk about this later, but Sag Harbor might be Colson Whitehead's least well-known book. Um, and it's a well-written bildungsroman about a wealthy black teen. There is none of the usual pathology. Um, even we have Jasmine Ward's Salvage the Bones, um, which has a drunk absentee father, you know, um, and then we have her Let Us Descend, which is which is situated around actual slavery. So I'm not sure how much um, how dated the satire really is, because I think, um, you know, always until we are actually in a post-racial society, that desire and that intent and that that need actually will be there. It's interesting that you mentioned the color purple because obviously like another version of that just came out and does your does your mother go? Um, does she walk out again? Does she totally <laughs> skip it? Is it I mean, I haven't seen this this new version, so I I haven't either, but I have a feeling she would just if she could walk out again. <laughs> I feel like we have to talk about one of the most remarkable and bluntly satirical scenes in the movie. Monk attends a book festival in Massachusetts. Nobody goes to his panel because all of them are attending an event by another younger black writer named Sintara Golden, played by Issa Rae. Sintara, we later discover, went to an expensive private college. Um, she talks about how when she worked as a reader at a publishing house, she felt like every submission was from, quote, some white dude in New York. She asks, where are my people? But when she reads from her book, it doesn't sound like her. Um, I think we're going to drop some sound here to, from the movie and then ask James to unpack this scene. How did you come to write this book? What really struck me was that too few books were about my people. Where are our stories? Where's our representation? Would you give us the pleasure of reading an excerpt? Yo, Sharonda, girl, you be pregnant again? 
If I is, Ray Ray is gonna be a real father this time around. Thank you. Okay. So I, I would like to respond to that by referring to two other scenes in the movie. So the first one is sort of midway through where Monk and Centara are having lunch in the conference room where they're like a part of the judging committee. And he's asking her questions about her book, basically wanting to know what's the difference between my pathology and the book that she wrote. And so she then attempts to make a case for giving the market what it wants and like what's wrong with that. And, and I remember having a reaction while watching the movie and sort of remembering, like going back to when I first started writing, I had this lofty goal of wanting to give the market what it needs um, as opposed to what it wants. And I think having you know written for a while and um, still being in the process of trying to find my footing in the, in the literary space, my outlook has changed somewhat. But I think generally speaking, you know, there, there, there needs to be, we should, we should have representation across the spectrum. You know, like to, to borrow the analogy from uh, Monk's agent in the movie when he talks about the different Johnny Walkers, the, the, the black, the red, the blue, or, or to use another a food analogy. If books are food, you don't want to have any food deserts. I, I want to be able to go to Whole Foods. I want to be able to go to the co-op. I want to be able to get fa have fast food options. And when you, if you, if when that's missing, I think that's when you really have a problem. The other example in the movie that sort of ties into this for me is towards the end after the the wedding. So Monk and, his, and Cliff are sitting on the porch. Cliff is his brother, and people his are dancing. People who haven't seen it. Yeah, his right. Monk and Cliff's brother. Cliff is his brother, um, and Cliff is asking Monk, "Do you think Dad knew if I was gay?" And Monk says he probably did, but then Cliff is saying, um, but he wasn't sure. And he makes this, this comment. He says, he never knew the entirety of me. And when I, so for me, that actually, that felt like a nod back to the original book, Erasure, upon which the movie is based. Um, and I think, you know, I want, as, as, a, as an individual who, writes and who consumes literature, I want the world to know the entirety of us. Um, so it's, it's less a question of was Sintara right or was she wrong or was Monk right or wrong. We should have the, the freedom and the, um, the flexibility to, to, you know, based off of our creativity, economics or opportunities that are available to us for the world to know the entirety of us. Okay, we're gonna take a short break here and we'll be right back. The first scene that you mentioned, James, um, yeah, so Centara and, um, Centara and Monk end up on a judging panel together and they're having this conversation. And then when they have this conversation, the other thing that she does is kind of call him on like a sort of snobbery, right? You know, like the, the notion that um, the narratives that she's writing about, um, that 
he's in some, the, she's in the notion that she's in some way a sellout and that he's not, you know, she really, she calls him out on that, which I appreciated a lot and which I feel like. And she says, I've done research, which I felt like was him. That was a little harsh <laughs> on uh, Percival Everett's part there. <laughs> um, that was a moment that I thought was gestured to something that the movie frequently does, which is like a kind of like discussion, but like irreconcilability like a fundamental irreconcilability of certain certain questions. Um, so I also just want for our listeners who might not have seen the movie to do like a quick sketch of the family uh, that we're talking about here. So Monk um, kind of gets in trouble at work. Uh, that's that's the opening, and I won't spoil that too much more specifically. And then he kind of he goes home to Boston where he grew up and reconnects with his sister, who is a physician, and um, subsequently his brother, who is very recently divorced and newly out. Um, and his mother, who is aging, um, is also present, and so is is the family housekeeper. And there's there's other kind of other characters there, but the, the brother is Cliff, the sister is Lisa, and maybe we can name the others as we go along. So later in the movie, Monk says, and I'm quoting here, black people in poverty, black people rapping, black people as slaves, whole soaring narratives about black folks in dire circumstances who still manage to maintain their dignity before they die. I'm not saying these things aren't real, but we're also more than this, which really speaks to what James was just saying. We talk about Ralph Ellison on this show all the time. The character's name is not an accident. So how does his philosophy here and elsewhere connect to Ralph Ellison's work and to Thelonious Monk's music, since his name is also obviously a reference to that? Yeah, I mean, both Ralph Ellison and Thelonious Monk were mavericks of a sort. Um, Thelonious Monk is just one of my favorite musicians ever. Um, and but, you know, when he first started playing venues in New York City, people actually thought he was getting the notes wrong. <laughs> so he persisted, um, you know, and that music is all about subverting order. And, and while we're talking about music, I think it's so worthwhile to talk about what has happened to rap and sort of the ways that um, in some sense it echoes, you know, what Ellison is trying to say in this movie, because rap started out as this is far more politically charged from music. Um, in some ways, it was music from the intelligentsia. But in the early 90s, the FBI, and I, I was a journalist at this time, so I had like AP wire on this. Not many people know this, but the FBI sort of went to people's homes um, and threatened them. Um, like Paris, I think they like, you know, roughed him up. And um, so there was an actual program. Um, it was like, a, it was called the Counter-Revolutionary Rap Program. So that's how we got to where we are today. Um, and then what's interesting is that the biggest consumers of gangster rap are white teens. Um, but you know, there are a lot of black teens who believe that about themselves. Um, and so when I think of Ralph Ellison, I think of his most character, famous character, the narrator of Invisible Man, who just hid himself rather than cooperate with the racial hierarchy and the rules thereof. And, and you know, both Thelonious Monk and Ralph Ellison um, were in some sense sort of performing that subversion. So I love in the film when Monk says, um, most people want something stupid and easy, and I'm not participating in making them any stupider. Um, so I felt like, you know, it, it, that that name was just the perfect sort of, you know, Thelonious Ellison marriage of, of those two sort of maverick philosophies. Um, and, and I love that scene where it's, it's spelled incorrectly at the, at the panel. 
And he corrects it with marker. I don't know if you remember that. I also remember, uh, like, Ellison's essay, uh, The Little Man at Chiha Station, which I refer to a lot, which is from Going to the Territory. You know, it's a, it opens where he's at the Tuskegee Institute talking to his piano professor, who is black, but she's studied with, like, Prokofiev and all kinds of, like, European masters. And, and she's arguing with him, like, look, you have to play your best all the time. You never can guess when somebody's going to know more than you are. In other words, saying like you can't determine somebody's knowledge by their class or their race, you know. And I think that that's part of what both Core Jefferson and, and Percival Everett are talking about in this movie. You know, I mean, I think that's Absolutely. why that character is named that. Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, I, I want to hear what you say. I, I, there was this really there was one of the other quotes in the movie that struck me is when Monk says, White people think they want the truth and they don't. They just want to feel absolved. And, you know, one thing that occurred to me watching this movie is that there are a lot of groups who only get to write one story in American literature. Um, there's, like, the, the coming out story. There's the immigrant story. There's, there's you know, there are all these stories that, that no one wants to publish unless it's a story of struggle and identity confusion, right? And and so I think, like, the other sort of marginalized community that I'm a part of is um, Appalachian writers. And, my, and actually, so I talked about how my mother kind of got up and walked out of The Color Purple. And when I first um, said I was going to be a writer... She sort of forbade me from writing about the hood. She was like, don't even pretend like you know, you know, know that. And I think by extension, she forbade me about writing about Kentucky and the shtick way that a lot of people have. Because um, there's a lot of very privileged people from Kentucky who are writing about people with no shoes. Um, and so... You know, well, I have some stories about people I know like that. <laughs> right? But I'm not going to write it. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I'm i just not. And I think, like, it's interesting because um, in some sense, like, it's so funny when Centara Golden is like, well, I did this research, you know, because I, I think that's what, like, we, we have to think about how... How do we even tell those stories when being a writer, we all know, depends very much on having so much privilege, right? It's like, there's so much, there's so much gatekeeping. There's so much that has to be, there, there's so much that even has to precede your coming to the gate that depends so much on privilege. So it, it, it you know, it is a, it is a valid question how are we how are we hearing those voices and i think like that that's kind of the discomfort that comes up in that conversation between Sintara and monk right it's like she's like well some people want to read this some people actually might identify with this we don't know them but i've done this research um <laughs> you know and it's a it's a it's a moment of um, real discomfort that I I don't think that scene quite manages it properly, but it it brought up some stuff. You know what I mean? I also want to just point out that she's reading this book called White Negroes, which and then he undercuts that by pointing out to her that this was an essay that appeared in Esquire by Norma Mailer a long time ago that she doesn't know. Right? So there's a way that the screenwriting the the screenplay is digging out from under her right there subtly, if you're paying attention. Um, I also just want to mention an essay by Gerald Walker, who is a classmate of mine and 
been on this show called Dragon Slayers. It's kind of about, you know, he like actually came from a rough neighborhood and, and McPherson, our mentor, you know, like kind of argued with him about what to write about. And this is in a different, completely different polarization, but an interesting essay. If people want to check it out, it's really beautiful. And I thought, I think worth reading, but on a similar subject. Thank you. I do remember um, Gerald as well. Huh? I remember Gerald. I, I, He's a really beautiful person. Yes. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. So despite these feelings, Monk decides to write a book that exploits what he considers to be the worst stereotypes of black life, which leads to some very hilarious scenes skewering the white publishers and white movie makers who buy into and intend to profit from this exact narrative. James, you're in the publishing industry. In fact, you're on the board of Grey Wolf, which published Percival Everett's novel Erasure, the source material for this movie. How accurate were these scenes? Have you been in meetings like this? So... One, one point of clarification, um, my, my board term just ended in December. So after four years serving on the board, um, I am no longer doing it. But I, but I do have a point of reference um, that was a, a very um, rewarding, interesting experience. And I can honest, honestly say I, I, I never experienced anything quite like what was represented in the movie. There were times when differences in, say, background or cultural perspective were illuminated in some of the conversations. Um, but for the most part, I mean, I think given the, the place, the, the space that Grey Wolf takes up in uh, the publishing world, given their culture, given their mission, um, there's a intentionality on the part of how they go about their work that uh, supports quality projects and diverse voices and um, risk taking. You know, I keep thinking Grey Wolf would have published Monk's book. Right? <laughs> he needed a Grey Wolf. Um, his original. His, his book, original. Right. 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 His, his original one. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, Grey Wolf is the good guys. It's not fair for you. It's, they're not the massive colossus. You know, they're, they're the upstarts that are in a small Midwestern town. Well, I don't know, not that small. But, um, you know, that they're different. I, I do agree. And we have a great relationship with a lot of their authors. Yeah. I mean, you know, with Fiona, when she was uh, the editor, she used to always say, um, you know, we're, we're punching above our weight. Um, and they just had this formula that worked in terms of, they, they sort of kept things simple, they kept it small, but their reach was, was very wide and large in terms of the recognition of the authors. Um, and, um, you know, Carmen, now that she's taken over the helm, has continued in, that, uh, in, in, her, in Fiona's footsteps. So you're, you're right, um, Grey Wolf is exceptional in that regard, but... Um, yeah, so n n nothing quite like what, what was portrayed in the movie. Uh, a lot less tame than that. Can I say that I've met some uh, editors like that and from big four publishers <laughs> in my time around the block? You know, none who have edited me, fortunately, but I've definitely been in meetings like that. Yeah. 
where somebody you just felt like they just absolutely were being incredibly insincere and they were talking about money, right? And they're flattering someone in a way that is completely irresponsible um, and sort of grotesque. And I think the movie does a good job of that. I think that happens. Yeah. Jacinda, you're nodding De- your head. Definitely. I, I mean, it was interesting. Like, my first my first novel was with Norton. Um, and I remember... <laughs> My editor, I, I was never really sort of pushed in any certain like direction as far as the 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 character trappings of the characters' lives or anything like that. But there was a point at which I was distinctly asked, "Well, where is the struggle?" And I was like, "There's plenty of struggle. It's not maybe the kind of struggle you're thinking of." And I know what you're alluding to, but. Um, but yeah, that, that, that does happen, right? Um, and, and I think that it's funny because those of us who are kind of um, privy to these kind of meetings understand that they're, they're I, you know, people can be very blunt. People can be very crass. Um, it, it shouldn't be shocking, but it's often stunning, right? Um, when we get those, when we get that commentary. So for our listeners who haven't seen this yet, um, again, like kind of a quick sketch. Like, so in the movie, uh, the two notable interactions are there's one with um, an editor who gets on the phone with, with Monk and then initially is confused when he sounds like himself. And then he kind of performs um, a shift in diction and <laughs> kind of performs being that essentially that what he has written uh, is autobiographical. And then his agent says that he's a wanted fugitive. That doesn't help them. Right. And then things. I don't and think. then the other interaction is with um, a, a director, I think, na- uh, played by Seth Cohen of the OC, played by Adam Brody. Um, and his name is Wiley. And he is kind of, yeah, like m- even much more than the editor, very in it for the money. Whose last picture was Plantation Annihilation. <laughs> <laughs> so... I, I mean, one of the other things, like, th- this movie also portrays the publishing industry just flat out in a way that I so rarely see on screen. James referred earlier, Jacinda, maybe it was you, like, to a moment where Monk is, um, right, Monk is at an event. He's on a panel, and his name is, his name card is misspelled, and he, like, takes the card and adds an L to the Ellison. And, like, it's exactly that kind of indignity, that kind of tiny humiliation where... You know, people kind of think the life of the writer, you're like, you're like, oh, you're so, you're a writer. That's so amazing. And you're like, actually, I sit in tiny hotel rooms with five people and people always leave out the penultimate N in my last name. Um, And so it's just kind of this, like, I feel like it was so, I feel like I hadn't seen these things. Like, I, I just felt like a shudder of horror every time I watched Monk perform being okay um or 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 not being okay and then his agent being like no be okay be okay um absolutely but you know there's a flip side Sugi, because i was so that's funny i don't think i've ever felt so glamorized as a writer as when he is writing and the characters are talking to him you know what i mean and he's (laughs) like sipping his little drink and and he, and the character's like what are you what are you doing to me right i mean that there was something kind of thrilling about seeing like parts of the process actually portrayed on the screen i and i don't know if you guys have seen origin but it's similar in that it's like 
It is actually a movie about how do you tell a story, and that to me was completely fascinating. But I I, I agree about the the petty indignities that just pile up, you know. And like when he goes to the bookstore and he actually moves his books, right? <laughs> like, who among us? I did that once. <laughs> when my first book came out, like it was the Barnes and Noble in Kansas. It's a book about Kansas City. It's you know, and like they didn't have it. And I was like, look, I got a box. Can I just come over there? And they're like, we don't really do it this way. I'm like, I'm coming over there with my books. And so that's awesome. Yeah, I, I felt for Monk there. That is awesome. <laughs> but yeah, it's like he, he didn't even code switch good. Sorry, go ahead. Say that again, James. No, I, I said he, he didn't even code switch smoothly. It, it was like this herky jerky, unbelievable transition from the way he normally walked and talked to this caricature. Um, and did you catch when he walked into the meeting with the director where they started playing like the black exploitation music sort of in the background? <laughs> but then he orders a Chenin Blanc, which I thought was so funny. That was hilarious. <laughs> that was so funny. It was like he didn't really know anything else to order. It was hilarious. I mean, it's, it's an amazing it was great. Really enjoyable. And I mean, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Wright is so good in this movie. It's like every register so of discomfort, really, that you like to, because he, yeah, I mean, it's exactly right. It's like he switches, but he switches badly and we need to see that. And then um, just into the section that you referred to, right? So for our listeners, just like um, essentially the character that Monk is writing about suddenly appears in front of his desk and, and they, the two characters have a conversation and which is not the way that it happens in Erasure in which the, the kind of faux, the faux book actually appears in its entirety. Um, and so like, but it's, it's a, it's an interesting transition, like from text to screen, just to think about how that works and, and what's represented in that conversation between the two characters is a certain kind of stereotypical, right? Like a stereotype of black family dynamics. And that stands in specific contrast to the family that we see on screen, Monk's family. Um, and Jacinda, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that because, yeah, Monk's family plays a really large role in the movie, and it's very interesting. Yeah, and I mean, it's you know, it's there. There are a couple of things. Um, one one moment that stood out for me um, that's so brilliantly acted by Jeffrey Wright um, is when Lorraine, who is the family's maid, um, I, how do I tell this without spoiling it? Um, something happens, and it's time for her to go. And he says to her, how about, do, do you, do you, don't you want this apron? And she says, she, this woman who has worn this apron through the whole movie tells him, I always hated that color. It's just the one your father bought. And Jeffrey Wright gets this look of realization on his face because he in some way has reenacted this on this maid, right? He has sort of prescribed her to a certain class role in his head, even as he says, you know, don't call me Mr. Monk, but he has, he has prescribed her. So it's, it's kind of interesting, like the exploration of class in this movie as apart from race is really interesting. Um, but even the fact that, you know, it, it's funny, like I heard someone say the other day, um, this was not, this, this was a white person who said, Oh yes, you know that 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 was autobiographical because he comes from that sort of family, and and the way he said it was as if um, this was highly unusual, right? Which I don't know that it is that that unusual. Um, I think there is a freedom that that black people are not allowed to have on the page 
um, and consequently are not allowed to have in people's minds, right? Um, and so the, the class aspect of this movie, I thought, sort of, that's this is what it is about, is the freedom of storytelling, right? No one thinks, he, Monk says this, Monk says, no one thinks Bukowski is the definitive white experience, which means Bukowski gets to write whatever he wants, right? And I think what's cool about this movie is that in the end, um, just via the movie, Monk also gets to write whatever he wants to write. Because I think what got me about the movie, and the, the second time I saw it, I actually had to walk out for part of it. I'm not going to spoil, but I think you all know what I'm talking about. The most sort of affecting part of it. I had to walk out. Because at the end of the day, this is also very much a movie about caring for your elders. Um, it's a movie about family conflict. One of the best lines of that whole movie is this family will break your heart, you know? And so it, 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 I feel like the, the, the sort of departure from the standard black, you know, whatever we think of a black family just gives gives that movie that much more breathing room, that much more freedom. And it's a wish that I have for, for black literature, that it would also have that kind of freedom. I mean, you see that in the costuming. I mean, Jeffrey Wright has always got a really nice Oxford on, man, or and he's wearing a tie. He looks fantastic all the time. And there's that one scene with his brother. Are we doing spoilers or not? I guess we're kind of semi-avoiding spoilers. But after a sort of affecting emotional scene, he and his brother are both sitting in a room in their in their beach house, and they have these beautiful white shirts on. And the brother's at the piano, which made me think of Monk. And like, the family has a certain aesthetic. That's the aesthetic of the family, you know. And so I I loved seeing that portrayed, and I understood it, and it felt real. It is real. Um, anyway, I thought that was an important and powerful part of the movie. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. I can't say this enough for people who haven't seen it, that in a lot of ways what stuck with me wasn't the satire as much as it being a story about um, everyone's family dysfunction. You know, family is a stain, right? <laughs> and that, that, that maybe portrays that idea very well. Well, just to, to piggyback off what uh, Jacinda's last comment, towards the, the scene where Monk is ready to throw Cliff out of the house and, and disinvite him from the wedding, and Lorraine just comes over and embraces him and says, you are family. You know, so in all your imperfections or, or whatever that you may imagine, um, you're, we, I want you to stay and participate in my wedding. And that, that just sort of highlights the, po the point that you made. And it's such an interesting flip because um, throughout the movie, we've seen the family um, refer to Lorraine and, and repeatedly say, well, Lorraine is family, Lorraine is family. And we kind of know subtly, we're like, and she's your employee. Um, and so this is this moment where she gets to say it back. And the, the actress, I'm afraid I don't remember the name, the actress who plays Lorraine is tremendous. And also Sterling Brown plays Cliff and is just fantastic. Um, like he's jumped out of the screen. Unbelievable. Really. So, um, yeah, I think watching all of those scenes, I mean, absolutely. He's like, in very, very good shape, <laughs> is what I thought. That is also true. <laughs> um, 
That is also I'm gonna take my lover right now. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah, it's really it's really great. <laughs> it was fun to watch him embrace a role that was so different than um, than ones that he's played mm. in the past. Um, <laughs> So I'm curious, um, and I think I'm potentially putting the two of you a little bit on the spot here, but when we were corresponding about this interview before it happened, um, you kind of alluded to points of disagreement between the two of you about this movie, um, that you'd been in conversation about it and that you're, so I'm curious what those points are. I think the ending, wouldn't you say, James, um, and sort of my interpretation of it as, you know, you, Wow, it's really hard to talk about this without spoiling. Or maybe it isn't actually talk. You can say there are, mul- there are multiple... There the, are the multiple... The movie multiple ending choices, basically. There are multiple ending choices, and, and, and that's interesting in and of itself. And then at the very end, there's this appended sort of ending where Monk and his brother are driving... On the you know in the movie studio, and they come across a guy who is an actor playing a slave, and the guy they exchange these looks, and to me, my interpretation is that there is in fact a sort of moral imperative not to have done what Monk did, and Monk did it anyway, and I think James would probably disagree with that. I, I had a slightly different interpretation of that. Um, and then, but then I, I also, so the, um, there was a, an essay in the Times, um, John McWhorter wrote like a summary, a review of the movie. Um, and so we had some disagreements about certain points he was making with respect to some of the things that we've talked about here. And I think in, in an offline conversation, Jacinda was making the point that, or, or I, I will venture to say that you agree with him on this point, that we as persons of color or black people, to some extent, contribute to this image of ourselves that white people have by perpetuating stories and gangster rap and other cultural signifiers. And... I came away from that. Actually, I had all these notes about that that essay itself because it felt like he was trivializing the basically like one of his main other than saying we as black people help perpetuate this. Um, he was also suggesting that look, we've we've got all sorts of stories and movies. We got Black Panther. We got you know this that and the other thing. And yes, um, we have some things, but it felt like he trivialized the, the degree to which blood, sweat, and tears had to go into getting that. And then even then, that's just a small... You're talking about McWhorter's essay right now. Mick, I'm talking about McWhorter's essay and right. points we'll that he that. makes in, in the essay. Um, and sort of, sort of trivializing the struggles that continue that are ongoing because even even while advances have been made as we speak certain segments of the population are trying to chip away at those things whether it's voting rights or affirmative action or what have you um so i i had a very strong reaction to his essay 
as it related to the, the film and points that were being made in the film. And that, and that, that, was, that was sort of a, um, a framework within which Jacinda and I had some debate. Thank you. Um, well, um, it's, it's interesting. And I, I, I probably disagree with myself because, um, you know, I was doing the calculations. Like, ultimately, I think in this movie, Monk makes $5 million off of this book. I, 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 look, if somebody wants me to write a pathology for $5 million, I'll, I'll do that. I'll probably do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, well, because one of one of the interesting things that like we didn't really talk about this, but but one of the things that happens in the movie is that like Monk needs to afford to take care of his mother, and that so he there's a very specific. He does have a motive, right? Right. He's not just like I would like to make it rich. He actually needs to pay for something quite expensive and something that he loves and something that Cord Jefferson, I think, in directing in this particular way, teaches us to love. Like I love his mother. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, those scenes are, as you said, heartbreaking. And so, like, I feel a lot of sympathy for him actually needing that money. Yes. Um, yes. And, and I also want to go back to um, that reference that you made to the, the actor playing the slave at the end of the movie, because it's also a stunning multi-layered visual reference, actually, in that it's, it's an actor who has costumed almost precisely as Lakeith Stanfield is in Get Out. And so it is like a seven-level joke. Yes. And I just kind of wanted to stand up there's and be like... There's a lot of that. Yeah, there's a lot of right... I mean, and so the, the film, like, of course, like any film, is operating in a visual language that Erasure, the book, could not. Um, and so it does... It operates on its own terms and is doing these different things. And that was, like, one of the moments where I was like, oh, oh, chef's kiss. Um, I also really loved the uh, the list of the names of the books that were up for the award on the on the whiteboard. I <laughs> found really hilarious. <laughs> So <laughs> when the committee was doing that, I also felt like, the, I'm just going to say, as someone who's on a reading committee, everything about the reading committee was absolutely pitch perfect. <laughs> that is how that shit goes down all the time. And I also feel like everyone on the reading committee that I'm on views me as that guy from the West who's like, well, I don't know what I think about this. You know? that's, that's how they hear my voice when I'm speaking. It's not really me, but that's how they see me. <laughs> I was in the middle of judging a, a book contest, you know, when I saw the first one, I was like, oh, 100 pages. Oh, <laughs> this, is, this is how we do this. Okay. <laughs> so, Jacinda and James, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this movie, which I think, you know, I would 100% um, recommend that listeners head to the theater and check it out. Um, American Fiction, directed by Cord Jefferson, adapted from Erasure. Um, and of course, also head to the bookstore and grab Erasure and check out Justin's books. And don't forget to check out James Bernard Short's work. You can find links via our show notes and his website. Thank you both so much. Thank, Thank you, you so much for having us. This has been so yeah. much fun. It was fun. I appreciate it. And Percival Everett's other works, which of which there are many. Um, and he's a fantastic writer. All right. Thank you Thank both. Thank you. Thanks a lot. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. 
We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!